Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast. Before we roll into this episode 59 with Megan Hackinen, I just thought I'd let you catch you up on what I've been up to and what's going on in my world. So the biggest one is waiting for my wife to deliver our baby. We are full term now. Well, we, she is full term now and it could happen any day. So super stoked about that. I've got the bike trainer set up in the house and I, I've started to work on that to try to develop and, and grow uh, through the off season and uh, push like intervals and all that fun stuff. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, great way to watch hockey. Great way to take care of the baby when it's my turn. Just put her in one of those chest harness things and ride my bike like I see people on Instagram doing. Um, what else? Patreon draw. Uh, coming up at the end of this month, we are going to be having a draw for Blackburn Outpost Elite Frame Bag, which was graciously sponsored by Outdoor Gear Canada, one of the supporters of the show. So this draw is exclusive to Bike to Adventure supporters. And you can get your name in the draw for... One name for every dollar you've contributed in 2021. And for the months of October, November, December, I said I would triple that. So three names per dollar. And it's not too late. On that note, I have to thank Joshua Greenlaw for becoming the newest supporter. Much appreciated, Joshua. It's awesome. Thank you so much. And uh, yes, we don't have that many supporters for this show. And, and I really do appreciate it. It's not too late to sign up. And... On that same note, if uh, a monthly thing is not something you can swing, you could also make a one-time contribution through PayPal. And uh, yeah, that will be wicked as well. In this episode of the Bike Tour Adventures podcast, I have the chance to speak with one of the most badass women I know of. I first heard about Megan when I was researching the North Cape Tarifa bike race and saw that only one Canadian had previously raced the event. On top of that, she has bike toured Canada, the USA, Mexico, raced a Trans Am bike race, North Cape 4000, Paris, Brest, Paris, and was the 2019 World 24-Hour Time Trial Champion and course record holder in the women's division. More recently, she finished third in the Alberta Rockies 700 and crushed the BC Epic 1000 as the overall winner while setting a new women's FKT. On top of that, she's ridden lots of other Grand Brevets, races, and mini tours. Furthermore, she holds an MFA in writing, has been published in numerous cycling journals and magazines, and has recently written a travel memoir titled South Away, the Pacific Coast on Two Wheels. All these accomplishments aside, Megan is extremely humble and modest, and I'm super thrilled to finally have the chance to listen to her story. Megan, welcome to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm stoked to be here. This is going to be awesome. Sweet. So let's start with, uh, well, tell us about yourself. Who are you? And uh, yeah, your story. Yeah, so I'm a I'm a writer and ultra endurance cyclist and an adventure seeker from the West Coast. I'm currently living in the Okanagan Valley. So I grew up in Surrey and uh, lived in Vancouver and, and Saskatchewan as well. As an athlete, I think I really strive to push my limits in whatever sport I'm in. And I'm really driven to kind of figure out what I'm really capable of, like how far can I go? And that's why I love these ultra endurance challenges. I think the journey of self-discovery is something that really keeps me going and engaged. And and I also enjoy the process of training, which helps when you're trying to be competitive, I guess. I, yeah, I've always loved sports. I played all the kind of, you know, typical high school sports like soccer and volleyball and basketball. And I discovered cycling later in life. And I've just ah. been really lucky that I've been able to 
pursue it and and compete in it. So how old were you when you you got into biking? Uh, 23. Yeah. Oh, okay. And I'm 36 now. So did you grow up in quite the adventurous family as well? Was there a lot of like exploration and that kind of stuff in the within the family? So my father and my father's side of the family, they were more into like hiking and snowshoeing and kind of, um, you know, traveling. My dad did this pretty epic bike uh, trip when he was like in his 20s and he rode from Vancouver to San Francisco and then they hitchhiked into Mexico and like traveled nice. around in Central America and then he flew back to Canada and married my mom and you know the rest is kind of suburban father like history but that trip really inspired me um my father's mother my grandma Hakkinen she was a pretty um adventurous woman she still like have a motorbike and she cycled toured in Australia and China and uh she cycled across Canada when she was like 69 I think with like a supported group of folks but she was oh, the wow. oldest one so I remember going out to the highway when they were passing through Surrey and like jumping around with my little sign being like, go grandma. And she stopped for like a second, gave me a hug and was back on her bike. And I was like, what? Like, That's you're it? not even stopping to, <laughs> to say hi to me? <laughs> you're not staying for a night? <laughs> yeah, right? Nope. You don't want to get dropped by the Peloton. So I think those two folks, my father and my grandmother have been um, kind of the adventurous influences in my life. And my my mom is a lot more grounded. She has a yoga practice. She you know meditates and she's... Um, She's more about kind of those internal self-discoveries and she doesn't always understand what I'm doing, but she always like supports it, I would say. You know, she was the person who bought me my first set of rain gear when I was okay. in university and I couldn't afford to buy good rain gear for biking in Vancouver. And and she stepped up and, and bought me some Gore-Tex. So I know that she loves and supports me, um, but she, yeah, she's not the one who puts these ideas in my head, that's for sure. <laughs> Okay, nice. It seems like your father is pretty adventurous. And I think, do you have any brothers? I know you have a sister, right? Yeah, so I have a sister and she's uh, she's into biking as well, but not extreme. Uh, I don't have any brothers, no. Okay. So just my one younger yeah, sister. I'm, I'm trying to figure out the whole, uh, you know, being a girl dad and pushing them towards adventure. So that's a, <laughs> that seems like your dad did a good job there. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think he wanted us to play hockey. And uh, my mom's just like, nope, hockey's off the table. And as an adult, I, I started playing roller derby. So I had to learn to roller skate. So he taught me like how to skate backwards and all these things that oh, he cool. didn't get to teach me when I was a kid, like when I was in my 20s. So uh, I think that was a pretty cool moment for him. I worked at a roller rink. And so he would come like after it closed and and just teach me like skating skills. And, you know, ice skating and quad skating aren't that different. So it was a, a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of crossover. So that was pretty cool. Well, that's really, really neat. You've been cycling for a while, like you said, 13 years, but most of that time, when I look at the date, 2009 was your first big tour right? and that you call it the Pacific Coast Tour. And that's, I mean, that's 12 years ago. So you weren't cycling that long before you headed out on a, a big bike tour. Yeah. I don't really think that you need to have a whole lot of cycle experience to tour um, because you can set your pace each day. Yeah. You can figure things out as you go along and, you know, you're going to make mistakes, but you will learn from those mistakes pretty quickly. 
And um, I don't think you need to have, you know, like superhero fitness. When I set out for that bike tour, I'd, uh, I'd done a couple 100K plus days. But my sister who joined me, she'd never biked more than like maybe 40 kilometers in a day. And um, she, yeah, adapted real quick. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and I never really trained for my bike tours. I was always just kind of like, okay, like this is where I'm going to go. I'll get some maps. I'll get my gear set up. And, um, you know, the first week is a bit of a challenge, but yeah. I always found my body adapted and you, you know, end up putting those longer mile days in further down the road when your fitness has kind yeah. of caught up. Yeah. And I think uh, 2009 is kind of your pre, pre good quality cell phone data, um, digital maps. And, you know, so there comes the folding map, lots of times to stop and rest while you figure out where the hell you're going. Oh my gosh. Yes. You are so right on that. <laughs> uh, what kind of bike did you use in those early tours? Um, I had a Norco commuter bike. So it had like mountain bike handlebars. Um, I used Schwalbe Marathon tires. It was nothing special. It was like an yeah. aluminum bike. It got used for like 700 bucks. My parents bought it for me as a graduation present from university, actually. So I was pretty excited about pretty that. Yeah. And I just had like standard panniers, like waterproof MEC panniers and a tent strapped on the back. I upgraded um, to a handlebar bag for later tours. But, you know, back in the day, it was all like rear heavy, nothing on the yeah. front. Yeah. I was the same on uh, on my first early tours. It was like, well, either a mountain bike or a, an aluminum road bike, only stuff on the back. Yeah. In the early days of my, my bike touring. So, yeah, I get it. Once you get too many bags, it gets uh, a little hard to sort things sometimes. It's like those those rear panniers, like they're kind of monsters, but they're they're um, bottomless pits. You just keep putting things in them and yeah. they just disappear. Like, it's And then amazing. you realize you could just strap a bag on top of everything. So then you got just more <laughs> place to throw shit. You know? <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. So panniers. And like, how long did you ride on average throughout that tour? I guess, I mean, you built up as you went, right? Yeah, uh, I would say between 60 and 100 kilometers. There's a few bigger days. Uh, I think I did maybe two like century rides, like 100 mile rides. And some of the days are super short, you know, like we would just end up at uh, a cool camp spot and we'd be like, that's it. We're done. We're going to hang out on the beach until sunset and um, oh, nice. yeah, crash out here. Sweet. And I saw that you, you, um, you started in Terrace, BC, which is kind of a... A weird place to start a tour, maybe for, for most people. I, I think you were living there. I, right. I cycled the terrace a year ago, a year, well, two summers back. I started in Vancouver and I went to Whitehorse, uh, with my, my gravel bike. And, um, yeah, so I did a stopover for a night in terrace and it was awesome. It was just so good to get off the bike and be in a city <laughs> for, oh, a few, yeah. for a day, you know? So from terrace, you, you went, I take it, I think I know, I think I saw that, but you went, I assume to Haida Gwaii and then down that way, right? Via Vancouver Island. That's or? right. Yeah. So that's um, part of the world I'd always wanted to explore. Um, my degree is in archaeology and anthropology. So oh, okay. I, you know, wanted to visit Haida Gwaii and kind of, um, see this place that I had read about in my textbooks and I'd, you know, read Haida mythology and, just to, to go there and witness the place with your own eyes um, is is pretty pretty cool. I'd spent so much time before that, like in university, reading books, just feeling like a little like disassociated from the real world. So getting to travel there by bike and camp on the beaches and experience like the the storms and hear the waves at night, um, yeah, it was it was a pretty awesome experience. And I met a really cool fellow from Nelson on the ferry, and we just yeah. like buddied up and spent a week together. Um, his name is Jeremy and we got along really 
really great. He uh, he showed me how to fix my first flat oh, because nice. I I didn't know, <laughs> and uh, and it was a really great start to the trip. So from there, I took the ferry back to Prince Rupert and then to Port Hardy and Vancouver Island and and cycled the length of Vancouver Island and kind of noodled around a lot and stopped over at like Quadra Island to visit family mm-hmm. and I guess Denman and Hornby just to see them. And then I met my sister at Shawnigan Lake on the southern tip of Vancouver Island where oh, she was okay. at. Yeah. So she was like spending the summer um, in a treehouse at an eco village. And I like picked her up and we ferry hopped to Port Angeles from Victoria and kind of started our, you know, true Pacific Coast trip from there, you know, kind of following the the more traditional route, I oh, okay. guess. Yeah, I wanted to go to Haida Gwaii. I mean, I would have liked to. I didn't think it would have fit in my timeline uh, two summers back, but it was closed, actually. Like, no, no outsiders were welcome because COVID, oh, right? right? So everything was kind of shut yeah. down. Even the Cassiar Highway, like none of the communities except for Deese Lake, which is the only non-First Nations, I think, real community, city, town on that route, everything else was closed. So it was it was, a, it was quite an interesting ride, but we still had some chances for interactions and to see things. And yeah, it was kind of neat. That's like an extra level of challenge, right? Like cycle touring or, or doing these long rides during COVID and there's less opportunity to stop for things. And then, mm. you know, um, with like settler history, I don't want to be the person like bring disease into an indigenous exactly. community. Like I just was, uh, I was pretty aware to, to stay out when they have, you know, those little mm-hmm. Signs posted saying, you know, residents only. I was yeah, like, okay, I'll, yeah. I'll keep going and fill my bottles later. But definitely another level of challenge. Like, kudos on you for yeah. For it making. was um, it was there was well, there was one place I think it was called Iskut, if I remember correctly, and like the community was shut, but the store was open. And when we came to go on, they said, "Whoa, you're not residents here," and we're like, "Uh oh, we need food." And he's like, "Actually, I'll get you anything you need, and I'll just take your card and tap it for you." And we're like, "Oh, sweet, thank you so much!" Like, because. You know, while we didn't really necessarily need food, because I think all we did was eat a two liter tub of ice cream and uh, <laughs> junk, but um, it was nice to have like a chance to just get something fresh, you know, and not eat the stupid noodles or whatever I had in my bag or <laughs> the crap food. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. So I guess after your sister teed up with you and uh, you said like she had never done a big day and then she just started to build up that endurance. What was it like to cycle the Pacific coast? Uh, it was really, it was a really cool experience because I grew up in Surrey and we never like visited the American kind of coast. We'd go to, to Fino and, um, a place called Pachina Bay near Banfield. So, you know, I'd been to the coast in BC a bit, but I, I'd never been to like Washington or Oregon coast and, uh, yeah, there it's just a beautiful place. Like there's these kind of windswept caves and endless beaches with people riding horses and there's not a lot of, um, like population density. There's a little oh, okay. coastal towns yeah. and stuff, but, but yeah, it doesn't really get busy until you get south of San Francisco. Um, yeah, it's a pretty cool place for bike touring. We were on like a super tight budget. So we avoided campsites and just like, you know, stealth camped wherever. And we stayed with warm showers, hosts and couch surfing, but the, the Oregon and Washington state park system had these really cheap, like hiker biker sites. Oh, so okay. if, I was going to do it again. I would probably just stay in a hiker biker site, um, you know, more often because I think they're like, I don't know, they were probably like $5 a night when we were there. I think the price has gone up to like six or eight, but it, it's still pretty cheap. <laughs> and, you know, at the time we were just like, we can't afford any accommodations. Our money is all going towards food and, yeah. uh, the, you know, the necessities. We toured in the fall. So the weather was a bit like hit or miss. Uh, I think, you know, one of the advantages of being out in the fall is you don't get as many RVs and, and those kind of mm-hmm. like 
busy tourist um, highways. So that was really nice. Um, but it definitely like wasn't warm. When I look at photos, I'm always wearing a sweater or a rain jacket okay. or I have gloves on. Um, so the, the temperature was a bit chillier, but you know, we had pretty warm sleeping equipment and as you're going south, the temperatures are getting like warmer and warmer. So it kind of feels like you're trying to outrun the fall, right? Right. And, you know, so you can get to Southern California before the, you know, the big storms hit. Yeah. And hopefully you never hit the too hot a weather and never get too cold a weather. Just kind of follow that, that stream, I guess, of the weather change, that's it. right? Yeah. That's neat. I, I was going to say that during COVID, one thing that was really great with bike touring was no RVs. I mean, there were so few on the road. It was just, you know, typically, I think that whole route on the Alaska Highway going to Alaska, you have tons and tons of Americans crossing through Canada, but it just wasn't happening. There weren't many. Like, it was beautiful. Never, never felt stressed about vehicles. So, that was cool. Bit of a biker's paradise for, yeah. like, yeah, for summer one year. there. <laughs> Two years. <laughs> uh, mostly that last, that one year, yeah. So, what was it like to cycle? Actually, I was going to say uh, before that, do you think the Pacific Coast is kind of the perfect place for first-time tours? Yeah, I would say so. There's tons of camping options. Um if you're a little nervous about being alone, mm -hmm. there's so many opportunities to, to meet people and kind of, you know, buddy up with someone. But if you want to cycle it solo and just kind of, you know, guerrilla camp places, that is definitely an option too. Uh, refuel spots are never too far away. And, and the coast is just this beautiful, magical place. And you get yeah. to California and there's the redwoods and, you know, you go through San Francisco and Santa Cruz and, you know, cycling through LA, like I won't say was a joy, but it was an experience. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to forget it. <laughs> Were there any neighborhoods or parts of the city that you kind of went into or you guys maybe feel said, uh, you probably shouldn't be in this neighborhood or was there anything sketchy like that? Not really. The bike route mostly just follows the coast. Oh, okay. So there's, um, yeah, a lot of, a uh, lot of people on like, you know, rollerblades and mm -hmm. runners and you go through like the Santa Monica pier. Oh, that'd be neat. Um, yeah, I think the kind of lousy section was maybe long beach or getting into long beach. And it's just like this kind of lousy, busy road and it's away from the coast and there's debris everywhere. That's my biggest complaint about California. So it's just like tons of debris on the roads. I trained there a couple years ago and I got flats like every week and I was pulling oh, wow. out into like nails and shards of glass and I was like, come on. <laughs> I returned to LA to um, participate in Bike Bike and it's this like international bike co-op conference mm -hmm. and that was in 2020. 18 I was there. Anyways, it was a really cool event and I met some local folks there and did some rides with them and I was uh, actually surprised it wasn't such a terrible city if you're with a group. And you <laughs> you, people like, that know the place, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we like, you know, would take the lane and ride around and um, it was, yeah, it was pretty fun. But on my own, like, yeah, we just kind of stuck to the coast route mm -hmm. and, and, and made our way south. Sweet. What was it like to cycle with your sister? It was pretty cool. We uh, we obviously grew up together, but we didn't get along when we were kids. And then we went to separate um, universities and we, you know, like, I guess we stayed in touch, but not too much. And we both wanted to travel and kind of do some sort of celebratory trip after we graduated. Um, we graduated the same year because I was a little like <laughs> slower to finish my courses. Um, and we, we kind of knew that we didn't want to do something like, you know, two weeks in Europe. We wanted to do something um, a bit longer and, and kind of make her own adventure yeah. and uh, she traveled in uh, India for a bit and I traveled in Southeast Asia and New Zealand and we both kind of didn't love the idea of like taking buses and being reliant on, on someone else so we went into the trip with the same mindset that we were we were going to see how far we could go under our own steam and stamina and we got to kind of reconnect after not spending much time together so we went from this kind of like 
turbulent childhood to not seeing much of each other to being like in the same tiny like tarn to tent for you know two or three months on end (laughs) it's pretty neat how like as you grow up though like siblings who no i don't know that many siblings that just get along perfectly as kids like my brother and i did not get along very well either but now we're really great like we're so close so it's like it's funny how as we grow up we that that whole mindset changes you know for sure. Yeah. Being a kid is hard, man. Your emotions are like all over the place. Yeah. It's, uh, ah, man. Well, I just I'm, a t- I'm a teacher. Class. I see it every day. Like it's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Yeah. So how far did you and your sister make it? Or how far did you and go? So our goal was to get to the tip, um, in Cabo San Lucas and we almost got there. We ended up stopping in a little town called Mulahe. Um, because we realized we weren't going to make it to the the end of Baja. And someone Uh, told us about this cool, like white sand beach. And we were like, that's it. We're in, you know, give us directions. And we packed enough food for a few days and like biked ourselves over there and parked on the beach with a, you know, handful of other, Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, campers, I guess people mostly in like RVs, snowbirds staying there for a while. And uh, yeah, we just spent a few days in the sun and then we hitchhiked back um, on like a big transport truck. <laughs> so he took us as far as the border. And then we spent a couple of days with friends in San Diego and took a Greyhound back to uh, the Canada border. And I think our, oh, wow, our parents long. up there. It was a long Greyhound ride. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And was the, the not being able to make it exactly to the Southern tip, was that because of just timeline stuff like that's right yeah we spent a few days longer here and there than we'd imagine Mm -hmm. so we we stopped in san francisco for a little while and then uh, a couple days in la and then we ended up like meeting a guy named kevin in lompoc and he invited us to his parents place in san diego for thanksgiving Uh so we met up with him and his family and then san diego had this like pretty bad rainstorm so we stayed an extra couple days after thanksgiving and his parents were like don't go to mexico it's dangerous stay here we'll teach you how to surf and we were like, should we just stay in San Diego and just like surf and eat, I don't know, Mexican food in the U.S.? And, and <laughs> after like three days, we we're like, no, we have to go to Mexico. We want to go to Mexico. But there's just this really strong narrative of fear um, in yeah. the southern, yeah, in southern states. And and like on one hand, I, I get it. Like there's there's a lot of pretty scary things happening with cartels and stuff, but there's, there's scary things happening mm-hmm. everywhere. Like you can get hit by a bus, you know, let's on the be corner, realistic you know? here. There's pretty much always a fear of the neighbor, right? Like Canadians always talk yeah. about like, Oh man, you go to the U S one of the questions I asked you, like, what about the neighborhoods going through California? Like, it's like that inherent built in fear of, sure. well, we know America's more dangerous than Canada. So it's gotta be dangerous, you know? And Mexico, Mexico is definitely on that mindset, it's probably not more dangerous than some parts of U.S., but that's the mindset is that a Mexico is dangerous. And so they go with that. And and then it'll be the same for the next country, right? So Yeah, definitely. And when I lived in Asia, it was the same thing all the time, you know, so... Well, we were, uh, we didn't really have any bad experiences in Mexico. Like, yeah, just being on the highway was a little bit tough sometimes because there's not much of a shoulder, but most of the trucks who saw us like, um, were super kind and respectful and they'd, you know, give us a little warning honk and, and pass us quite wide. Mm-hmm. And we had one or two times that we, um, we felt like we were buzzed a bit too close, but in, in general, like considering how narrow the highways were, it was um, it was pretty pretty good, okay. and there there wasn't as much traffic down there either, which is nice. Yeah, yeah. I, I was gonna say, I think maybe Canada is the only country where people are like, oh, it's dangerous. <laughs> Everybody in the world is like, Canada's so safe. <laughs> <laughs> right. Sweden too. 
So what were some of the things like as a big first tour, what are some of the things you kind of learned about yourself uh, as from, from, as you went through this process? I think my ability to, um, to kind of handle life on the road was something that I learned. I'd already, you know, traveled before like backpacking and, and spent time away from home. But, you know, when you're biking, you kind of are trying to maintain your body and your bike in a way that you're not, um, that you don't have to do if you're backpacking. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember just showing up at like travel centers and being like, I need a bus ticket here. And, you know, you figure it out for me. Like, right. I, I, I I'm tired. I'm hungover. I don't want to deal with this right now. Uh, whereas on the bike, you kind of like, you just have to deal with it. If you wake up hungover, you have to ride it out. Like there's no, there's no two ways about it. Um, so yeah, so I, I learned that I kind of, um, handle those situations all right. And I didn't mind the the days with the big miles and my body seemed like up for the challenge. I had no serious issues, you know, a little mm-hmm. bit of like tension in my neck and shoulders and my quads would be sore, but like nothing went wrong. I had no like, you know, recurring stress issues. Okay. So, so that was good to know that my like body was up for it. I think the biggest thing I learned is that like people are, uh, are pretty stoked on like travelers if you are non-threatening um and when they see like two women on bikes we're like the least threatening thing around so we you know would receive invites to to come and stay in people's houses and you know people would be giving us food and stuff and of course there's there's a risk being you know a woman on a bike but i think there's also a lot of rewards people really reached out to us and we're um yeah just really kind and encouraging and you know crazy hospitality from warm showers hosts. It was, uh, it was pretty, pretty cool. So that's, that's a good thing to take forward, I guess. And, um, you know, like I host warm showers guests now, and I, I'm just so grateful that I was able to receive all that hospitality and, you know, exactly forward. I think that's a really good point about, um, as, as two women or two girls cycling is, um, you know, I've had a couple people say that, you know, they cycle toured alone as a female and it's great. Like this people are so, they, they feel like, I think, human humanity has this feel that oh it's a woman i have to help protect and provide you know make her feel safe or whatever but then you know sometimes situations can be a bit hairy or you know you can't oh you always got to be careful a little bit anyways but then people said oh as soon as i started traveling with my boyfriend or a guy or a a cyclist i met who's a guy it changes because now people are not quite as hospitable so maybe two girls very safe and uh for the most part and super hospitable you have all these opportunities to interact with locals and stuff and yeah, like I, I've traveled with like boyfriends as well. And uh, and I think that people see you as like a bubble. You're like a couple, you're a self-contained mm-hmm. thing. You should be able to take care of each other or whatever. And, you know, even when I'm traveling or if I meet people and they're a couple, like I feel like I'm like a little less, I don't want to say less friendly, but I, I kind of feel like they've got this. They're they're in love and they, they don't can take need care me. of me. <laughs> yeah, I'm a weird, awkward third wheel. Um, whereas I, if I meet two people and they're just like friends or, uh, you know, family members or something, like I feel more invited to engage with them. I don't know. That's I should probably be like more friendly to couples because they're probably sick to death of each other and like just like yeah, eager just to craving. meet someone like, Can't somebody just hang out with us? <laughs> <laughs> Um, that's a really good point. Um, <laughs> I don't even know where I was going after that. Actually, I was, I was going to jump forward. I know I mentioned I was going to talk about your book later, but I think now is the perfect time because I do believe you've built that memoir around this early memory of bike touring with your sister. So do you want to just talk about your book a bit? Yeah, for sure. So you're totally right on that. Um, South Away, the Pacific Coast on Two Wheels is a travel memoir about my first bike trip. And I uh, wanted to write about it because everything stuck in my head so well. 
I had toured like across Canada and through the Sierra Cascades back into Mexico. But this like bike trip with my sister just seemed like it was a, a better a better story to tell. And I uh, the memories were like really firmly ingrained in my head. I think maybe because I was getting like a ton of sleep because it was the fall. So we go to bed at like eight and get up at six. Mm. We we're getting 10 hours of sleep. So I had lots of time to like, you know, have those memories solidify my long-term memory bank. <laughs> but um, it's kind of a, a travel adventure story with two female leads and it just, uh, you know, traces our journey down the coast and our relationship and the highs and lows of, of being on the road. Um, I was really lucky that I uh, got to complete it as my thesis project for my oh. MFA in writing. So I worked with a, a writing mentor, Candace Savage, and she's an amazing Canadian nonfiction writer. And so she really helped me shape my story and, and craft it in a way that was engaging. And, you know, if I was um, if I was writing something that wasn't working out well, instead of bashing my head against the wall or being like, oh, this is good enough, she could step in and be like, listen, I think we need to do a brainstorming session. Oh, okay. You know it's not working. Let's get you over this, like, hurt. So, uh, yeah, she really, she really helped me shape the story. And, uh, it was pretty cool. Like doing a thesis defense on this like bike book that I had written. That's pretty Um, neat. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, after I defended, I was uh, lucky enough to find a publisher, uh, with New West, uh, press based out of Edmonton and, they, um, yeah, they released it in, in 2019, which was, or yeah, 2019, which was a guess 10 years after the initial trip. So it was a pretty long process mm-hmm. overall, but, um, a worthwhile one, I would say. It seems to be, if you want a good, well-written, I mean, it takes time. You got to all that processing that goes in your head. And then, you know, by the time it gets put on paper and I think I, I interviewed another guy who had written a book and it, yeah, it was like. 15 years between the time that he wrote the wrote the tour and then got around to putting it all to paper and making a book out of it. So, um, and you were really lucky, I guess, to, to have a way to integrate that into your masters so that you had access to all these resources to, to get you through those initial hurdles where people are learning about how to write a book because there's so much that you need to know and how to direct yourself and whatnot, right? Yeah, definitely. I I think like my writing journey and my cycling journey are really intertwined. Like I was having all these really cool experiences on the bike and I I found that I couldn't share them with my like words uh, very well. So, you know, I'd be at a bar telling a story and then I get interrupted and sidetracked and I'd be like, oh, I didn't didn't really get to finish this really (laughs) cool story. And then I started like sending out these um, mass emails to like everyone on my email list or whatever. And that was a a better way, I guess, to tell the story, except I felt like I was spamming everyone. So I I started a blog for a little while. And then I realized that like, I wasn't actually that great of a writer. So I took some creative writing classes through distance ed. And, and that led to a few more classes and um, doing some kind of um, work with different writing mentors. And, and then I enrolled in the MFA in writing program because I, I just wasn't really stoked with what I was doing with my life. I was living in Vancouver and I was working as a barista and um, it wasn't really bringing me like the satisfaction that I (laughs) needed from a career. So I kind of took a time out and went back to school and was able to, you know, pursue this, um, this craft that I was interested in. Um, the only kind of downside was that when I was in school, I didn't really have that much time to cycle. I, I did learn how to winter bike in Saskatoon, which was great. And I took up rondineer cycling, but like those years I was, you know, much more sedentary mm-hmm. than I was when I was cycle touring or even living in Vancouver and like commuting all over the place. Right. Yeah. So 
So um, just to jump back for one minute here, I know I um, we're kind of getting right to into the endurance stuff, which is awesome because I love it. Uh, but in 2010, you crossed Canada. Now you did that, I believe, solo, probably for the most part. Yeah, yeah. So I uh, intended to do it solo, and then I just kind of picked up people along the way, and um, you know, it was pretty. Yeah, it was pretty organic, I guess. I, I started out in Surrey where I was living with my parents and I did a little like shakedown ride um, to Victoria kind of through Cowichan, I guess. I I might be getting this wrong. I think I went to Cowichan Lake and then the most Western town, which I feel like is Port Renfrew and then down to Victoria and looped back and then started headed east. Um, I had a lot of family in the interior, so I ended up riding some of the Kettle Valley Rail Trail and, you know, dropping into people's houses. And uh, I was on my own for a while. And then um, my father actually came and joined me in the community. Yeah, yeah. He got a couple of time. Uh, he got a couple of weeks off work um, and he wanted to kind of relive that bike magic that he had experienced when he was on the road when he was younger. So we toured to Regina together and it was just a blast. We had so much fun and we, you know, ended up riding at the same pace as a couple other guys in the prairie. So we'd meet up at like little municipal campsites and one of us would bring like, you know, a 12 pack of beer and we'd share it around to... I don't even think, I feel like there's probably a campfire van. So we probably were just sitting around <laughs> like a headlamp or something, Stove. but it was, it was pretty fun. Nice. Um, yeah. And I, I loved touring across Canada. Like I had lived in, you know, Surrey um, all my life at that point, And I'd never left the province before. So um, I actually, I went to the Yukon to visit a friend in the spring of 2010 and the Olympics were happening that year. So it really just like kind of sparked this desire to see the rest of the country because it was kind of like all eyes on Canada mm-hmm. and people would always be like, oh my gosh, you're so lucky you live, you know, in, in such an amazing country. And I'd be like, yeah, yeah, I guess so. But I really haven't seen much of it, you know? It's so typical so, too of us Canadians, you know, like, I mean, or just people in general, I guess you spend more time touring other places and holidaying yeah. in different destinations than your own country. Totally. Yeah. So this was kind of my chance to, to get to see everything. And, nice. um, and, and I knew that I wanted to do it on a bike so I could kind of, you know, set my own pace, but but yeah, like Northern Ontario is just a blur and yeah. the Maritimes were awesome. It's and- probably just as well because the roads and shoulders are terrible in Northern Ontario. And- <laughs> oh gosh, yeah. I drove it this summer actually and I was like, I can't believe I biked here. This is this is terrifying. Yeah, that whole like to Thunder Bay and then down to Sault Ste. Marie kind of thing and or all the way to Sudbury, oh I guess. It's just kind of ugh. Yeah. So taking your experiences from your first tour and then a year later you're crossing Canada, what kind of things did you learn that you were able to adapt into being a better tour or how did it change as you you progressed? I was a lot better at finding like places to camp. That was one thing that I think my sister and I, you know, kind of figured out is uh, places where you feel um, safe and, um, you know, kind of getting into that routine of, okay, sunset's coming. I better find a place to sleep tonight, you know? Yeah, the right time Um, for it, right? (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Uh, my fitness was a bit better. So I, I pulled longer days. I think I was doing more like, you know, a minimum of a hundred K versus okay. a, a maximum of a hundred K. And I, I, I really wanted to, to be there. And I guess I wanted to be on the Pacific coast as well, but I don't know. Yeah. I think I, I was a better, um, I was better at kind of like finding cool people to ride with. And okay. I, I think I had better like spidey senses, you know, and, and most of the people I met on that trip were just 
awesome. And I also met some people that maybe weren't so awesome, but I, I kind of was like, oh, I'm going to you know, go my own way. And I think on that first trip, I was probably a little more like susceptible to like naive um, or whatever, maybe. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe sucked into conversations with people that were a little, um, a little odd. And, uh, and I didn't really have that crossing Canada. I, I just, okay. you know, just seemed to kind of go from cool person to cool person. And, um, I also became a little bit more bold, um, in asking for stuff when I needed it. So if I ran out of water somewhere, I would just knock on someone's door and ask if I could fill up on their tap. You I know? do that and, too, all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, it's not asking too much of someone, but on that first trip, I just felt so weird. Like I had to be responsible for everything. And if I couldn't do it, I was kind of like failing somehow. And, and then, yeah, I, I just got used to it. So across in Canada, if I, if I ran out of water, I would just ask if I couldn't find a place to camp, I would ask someone. And, um, in the Maritimes, I ended up sleeping on people's sofas and beds. They would be like, Oh, you don't have anywhere to sleep. Just come, just on, come in. on in girl. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was really great that way. Um, so yeah, I think dialing in the kind of sleep and, and self sufficiency, and, and knowing that you don't have to do absolutely everything for yourself. Like I'm not saying you should go around knocking on people's doors and asking to sleep on their sofas, but I think it's okay to ask to sleep on their lawn. And if they invite you on the sofa and it's a good situation, then go for it. <laughs> yeah, and then you just remind them you like eggs and bacon for breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> Over easy. Yeah. So. In 2016, you started, uh, or I guess at some point before 2016, I think I saw 2016, you did your big first Brevet. That's right. Yeah. So I guess in the time building up to that, you did lots of smaller ones, right? What took you from bike touring to, you know, a more roady, long distance type riding like that? Uh, Having two knee surgeries and deciding to stop contact sports kind of pushed me in the direction of competitive cycling because, um, yeah, I had blown up both my knees, one snowboarding, one playing roller derby, one, uh, dancing at an after party. So I guess it's three ACL tears and two surgeries. And I, I just didn't want to be, you know, kind of putting my body in those high impact situations and, uh, cycling is, is pretty low impact and I, it had never bothered me. So when I realized that, um, my options were going to be a little more limited, I, I had my second knee surgery in 2015 and I'd recovered from it. Uh, I was going to school in Saskatoon and, and I realized that as I was recovering, recovering from it, I still wanted to, to play sports. I still wanted to be competitive. So I kind of was trying to find something I could uh, do and, I discovered Rondonier Cycling. I think I was just looking for cycling clubs in Saskatoon. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll get a road bike and get into road biking or, or something like that. Um, then, yeah, the Prairie Rondonier's uh, website popped up on like Google and I was just totally enthralled. I was like, what? People do rides of like 200 to like 600 kilometers in a, in a day, in a weekend. Like this is, this is crazy. And I was super curious about it. And I, you know, I think I emailed the club director and she was like, mm, sorry, it's like the end of the season. I emailed her in November or something. And she was like, you know, get in touch in the spring. So, um, yeah. So I started Rondonier riding in the spring of 2020. 2016. Okay. And um, I was using the same bike I toured across Canada with and toured down to Mexico. It was a, you know, aluminum city bike mm-hmm. with like flat handlebars. And uh, I had like all these flowers, like plastic flowers attached to it and stickers and like my little handlebar bag. And I showed up for the first 200K brevet and they were just like, um, Are you sure it's the right you- place? <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. And I was wearing like, you know, my running shoes and I had like Lycra shorts, but just like a t-shirt and a hoodie or something like that um, with like my little reflective vest over top. But uh, yeah, so I did the whole first season and uh, it went really well. Like I didn't have any major catastrophes, but there was a lot of hand holding. The other club members were like always at my side. Someone was like almost always with me to be like, Megan, like, you know, this is how you get in and out of a gas station really quick, quickly without wasting time. Or, oh, cool. You know, like all the tips and yeah. tricks you need. Yeah, for sure. So it was really, uh, it was really helpful. And especially for those first kind of um, night ride situations on the 400 and 600, like I was, I was never alone. So I, I look back and I feel like I, you know, really learned a lot, but I, I didn't do it independently. I did it with the, you know, the support of a group. And I was lucky that I joined a very um, supportive group. Like they weren't mm. into getting, you know, FKTs and doing things quickly. They were, they were into getting to the finish line and, and doing it together if possible. And that was the perfect environment to kind of learn to how to do the sport. Mm -hmm. um, so after 2016, um, I was like, okay, like, I think I'm into this. I'll get a road bike because it seems like a more appropriate bike. Um, and I had never ridden with like, you know, pedals that clipped in or drop handlebars or, or anything like that. I think the skinniest tires I used were like 32 or 35. Oh, wow. So okay. it was, uh, it was, a, it was a pretty exciting transition. Uh, my first ride, I, I went out and I was like, Oh my God, I'm so fast. I must have a tailwind. It's going to be terrible going home. And then I turned around and went home and it was even faster. I was like, <laughs> Oh my God, <laughs> this bike is a speed machine. So yeah, that was a, that was kind of um, my journey into ultra distance cycling. And in 2016, Lil Wilcox won the Trans Am. Yeah. So it um, kind of put that event on my radar. And uh, I was just, gonna ask know. that. Yeah, that was I was gonna ask you is did, did you like you're following Lil Wilcox and you see that she wins this and if that's what came about. Yeah, yeah, it definitely like, you know, sparked my interest in um, kind of competing and, and knowing that as a woman, like I could potentially do really well. I had a background in bike touring at that point. And, you know, I felt like I could take care of myself on the road. The the jump to racing, though, is, you know, sure, you can take care of yourself doing 100K, but can you do 300K? Like those are big differences in numbers. And, you know, with the brevet, you go out and do, you know, a Saturday ride and you go for 300 kilometers and then you have all week to recover before you go and do another other one. So, yeah. um, I think that was the big question that was, um, you know, above my head was like, can I sustain these speeds day after day after day, you know? That's awesome. And I, I mean, I've looked at these races and I, I would just love, even at 42 years old, I'm thinking like, man, when am I going to have a chance to go do this? You know, it's not going to be next year. That's for sure. Uh <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, so you, you decided to go to Trans Am and I mean, prior to this was the longest thing you did was the 1200K brevet. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So I had done long tours, but the 1200K was kind of the longest I had sustained at race pace. Um, and that was the Swan River in Manitoba, which is relatively flat. And again, I rode a lot of it with other people. So um, I did it without like digital navigation. I had like printed cue sheets oh, wow. being like, turn left on this road. So I knew for the Trans Am, I'd have to like make some upgrades. I, uh, Of course, you can do the Trans America route with paper maps, but I don't think they're ideal if you're trying to race. Um, so learning how to navigate was one of my big, <laughs> my big barriers. And, you know, I'm still learning. I'm a lot better than I was. Um, and navigating across America is a lot easier than, you know, navigating in, in the little villages and stuff in Europe where there's a million roads and right. roundabouts. So. 
And so you use this new bike that you bought to do the Trans Am, right? That's right. Yeah. What was your gear packing like? How did that change? Uh, so before for the long brevets, like I had shifted from panniers to like makeup bags that I picked up at the thrift store and zip tied to my bike and they weren't waterproof, but they were essentially bike packing bags. And I, I went out and I bought real bike packing bags. So I had like the top two bag and the frame bag. I think they were the waterproof ones from Specialized and the Timbuktu seat post bag. Um, and then I had arrow bars that I would just like zip uh, stuff on with like a bungee cord. So uh, like, it's just a, um, like a little dry bag stuck to it, right? Kind of thing or? No, no, no. I would literally just like put stuff on there and be like, peanuts go here and I'll add a, like, <laughs> a, a Pepsi and I'll just like wrap it up. And sometimes it'll, you know, might fall off on a steep hill, but Fair I'm willing enough. to risk it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Did you have a goal going into the Trans Am? Yeah, I wanted to finish in 25 days. Um, I don't know why that was my goal, okay. but I think I like round numbers and it seemed feasible. I can't remember what I would have to average to do that. Something like 270 kilometers a day. But, uh, you know, I, I knew that I wasn't going to be the Lale Wilcox of the race. I, I understood that my abilities were not there yet, but yeah. I also didn't want to be considered like a, a cycle tourist. So in, in the Trans Am, like, it's kind of thought of if you finish over a month, you're more touring than racing. Okay. And everyone's racing to the best of their ability. But if, if you take longer than 30 days, it's, you know, it, there's a little bit of a cutoff there. So mm-hmm. I, I definitely wanted to do it under 30 and ideally under 25. And, um, you know, at first it seems so easy. You're just like, oh, yeah, for sure. Like, I feel fine on day two. And then by day six, you're like, my body is revolting and I want to <laughs> curl up in a ditch and sleep for three days. Mm-hmm. But you did it. You finished, I think, um, 24 days and I forget the number of hours, 18 hours. Yeah, or man, you studied up 24 days and 22 hours. So I uh, made it in under the cutoff with very little time to spare. Were you like really pushing it at the end going, oh, shit, here we go. I got to go. Or were you like, OK, I'm safe. Uh, so in my mind, I was pushing at the end. Yeah, I, I thought I was, you know, really like digging deep and pulling every um, every ounce of strength yeah. I had left. But when you, you know, go back and look at how fast I wrote it, it was not very quick. Oh, sorry, I have a dog. Trying it's okay. To get into we can have a little pause. Yeah, she's just like, I can hear her like butter head against the door. And now she's like, oh. I put a baby gate up in the stairs. So I think I think I put it up so the dog doesn't come down the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think she's gone. Cool. <laughs> yeah, what were some of the big challenges that you had to overcome that, you know, you hadn't experienced Prior to this, I think, like you said, getting up after day 20 and trying to cycle 300K, that's definitely one of the challenges. But uh, anything else? The fatigue and the sleep deprivation were the hardest things to overcome. And I'd experienced them a little bit on the brevets. Um, I hallucinated a bit on the 1200. And it was a pretty dangerous situation looking back on it. And I, I knew I didn't want to go to that place again. I knew that it wasn't safe for me. It wasn't safe for other people on the road. Luckily, there was no one on the road because this is in the middle of Manitoba at night. But mm-hmm. I, I knew that that was like the red zone I, I had to stay out of if I wanted to finish safely. So um, managing kind of uh, the need for sleep with the you know desire to get mileage and, and really making all of your time efficient. So, you know, if you're off the bike, you're not just like, you know, kicking your feet up for, for too long at these gas stations. You're always kind of like trying to maintain forward momentum. Um, I had some trouble with my Achilles and I, I didn't really anticipate that. Um, I lowered my seat and then um, one of the riders who scratched uh, gave me her KT tape and uh, I started 
you know, taping my Achilles and I taped it the whole time and it definitely helped. Um, but you know, Achilles pain is pretty crappy. Like I, um, I, yeah, I wasn't a happy camper for a few days. Um, and then the other challenges, uh, navigation a little bit, um, and then just dealing with like crazy weather, you know, when you're on the road for that long, you're going to experience some, Mm -hmm. some storms and some highs and some lows in temperature and heavy winds, um, and being able to kind of shift gear and, and adjust to that. And a couple of days I cut short because the weather was just so awful. Once it was like, you know, monsoon downpour in Kentucky, I think it was hurricane Cindy. And then another day, um, in, I don't remember, Montana or something. It was just crazy windy, you know, kind of realizing that when you're only going like, you know, nine kilometers an hour, you might as well get off the bike and nap for a bit and, you know, try again at night. Yeah. So just trying to play it smart, I guess, and, you know, not dig myself into a hole that I couldn't get out of. And I, uh, you know, kind of studied previous races and realized that a lot of people who start these races don't finish. And, you know, the reasons you scratch are running out of time or getting injured or, you know, just becoming miserable. So I wanted to kind of try and balance my my efforts so I didn't fall fall into any of those traps. Yeah, I think like sometimes you dig yourself into a hole and you just can't get out of it. Like like you said, sleep management. Um, I think once you get into the point where you're hallucinating stuff, you, you'd have to stop for a full day and get a lot of rest to, to get to the point where that kind of goes away. And, you know, like you're not going to necessarily be able to pull back all that lack, uh, that deprivation into a, a successful event if you get really deep into that, right? Totally. Yeah. And the same thing, like, you know, if you get heat stroke or frostbite or something like that, you, you don't jump back from it. It takes a lot longer to recover. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, what was your sleep, uh, your sleep schedule in this race? Did you have a X number of hours per night? I, I didn't at the time. I think I was just trying to figure out the minimum I could get by on. Um, over other races, I've kind of uh, realized that it's about four hours for those longer multi-day events. If I get less than four hours, it's just not uh, not enough, and I end up taking cat naps or or wasting time on you know stupid things because I'm not thinking straight. Yeah. But if I can kind of nail four hours, it seems to be um, seems to be enough. In regular life, I like my eight hours. Yeah. Just saying. <laughs> You need it. You got to build up that that ability to to deprive yourself later. <laughs> um, yeah, sometimes I find like if I'm not getting enough sleep um, in the couple of bikepacking events I've done where I've really pushed myself towards FKTs, that next thing I know, I'm I'm daydreaming while riding and I look down and I've just dropped the pace. And I don't even know how long I've been going at this snail's pace because you're just in la-la land, right? Uh, yeah, I definitely know that feeling, especially if it's at night or something and you, you know you have a hard time telling how fast you're going at night anyways. Right. So, um, and then when you're spaced out, yeah, (laughs) it could be pretty low number and you'd be like, Oh, I, yeah. What was it like to, what was the feeling of crossing that line at the end? It was awesome. I just, I I felt so accomplished and euphoric and I didn't have any friends or family coming out to meet me, but there was a bunch of folks in, in Yorktown who, you know, just came out to, to cheer on, whoever crossed the finish line. And then some of the previous finishers were there as well that I had ridden with. So it was great to, to reconnect with them. Uh, I finished the same time as uh, Matthias, a German guy I was riding okay. with. And then two folks that we had ridden with as well, Nuno and Brian came in uh, maybe two hours after us. Uh, so it was like this little, you know, party on the the steps of the monument at like 830 in the morning. Uh, it was it was a great moment. Yeah, oh, very sweet. 
So, and then like after, you know, a day of sleeping, you're like, oh shit, how am I going to get home? I have like (laughs) all these logistics that I have to somehow cope with now. (laughs) And your brain is like, meh. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Amazing. And so in the years after, I guess uh, the next couple of years, you did some pretty awesome events in Europe. And this is how I first found out about you. I was looking up to do the North Cape Tarifa. And the only thing that stopped me in the end, um, and that would have been 2020, 2020 was, um, well, aside from COVID, I guess. But the thing that stopped me from going was the time, the start day on that was like a week, a week before I would have finished school. And there's no way as a teacher, you can get away a week early at the end of the school year. So then I actually settled on the North Cape 4000 and I noticed you had also placed third in that. And I was like, man, this girl, she's doing everything. She's amazing. And, uh, of course, I couldn't do that either because of COVID. So that's been a, an extending story on this whole thing. <laughs> but uh, what was it like to, or why did you decide to go to Europe to do these events? What was it like to to experience this? And um, yeah, tell us about it. Yeah. So I decided to go to Europe to do the North Cape Tarifa because the German fellow I cycled with um, wanted to do an event. And we thought maybe we could do it as a team because we had gotten along so well in the Trans Am. So we're like, you know, it'd be cool if we could actually draft and we could really race hard together. Ah. So we signed up for the North Cape Tarifa because it sounded even tougher than the Trans Am. And of course, you you know, once you do the Trans Am, you can only go bigger. So we signed up for the North Cape Tarifa. I think it was like 7,300 kilometers or something Jeez, from North yeah. Cape Norway to Tarifa, Spain. It's it's a pretty epic route with a lot of high mountain passes. And and we were going to do it as a, as a pair, but kind of right away, we realized we weren't getting along as well as we had on the Trans Am. And uh, it just wasn't working. We weren't gelling or meshing or whatever. So we ended up scratching in Bergenz, Austria. Um, and he kind of encouraged me to go on and finish alone. And I didn't have the self-confidence to, to ride in Europe by myself. I wasn't very good at navigating. I was you know, afraid of the roundabouts. Everything was new and different and exciting, but also a little bit scary. Mm-hmm. So we both kind of pulled the plug and then we toured together for another month. And then he went back to Germany and I continued um, to the finish on my own, just at touring pace. And I think it was a good decision because I actually got to kind of slow down and experience you know, the Swiss Alps and the South of France and kind of enjoy these places in a way that I definitely wouldn't have had time to Mm -hmm. if I was racing them. Like that being said, I was disappointed that I didn't finish the event and kind of, you know, bummed about it, but I I didn't blame him for it. It was, you know, I I was, (laughs) wasn't doing my end of the teamwork either. And I was a terrible navigator and completely reliant on him. So um, my coach lives in Switzerland. So I was able to spend a bit more time in Europe, get a little more comfortable navigating the roads. And I thought the North Cape 4000 would be a really cool event to do because like, I think that North Cape Tarifa is a bit long. Like it's pretty insane. Yeah. <laughs> it's really long. You really have to commit a long, uh, a long period to do it. Um, the North Cape 4000, on the other hand, is apparently only 4,000 kilometers. But the year I did it, it was like 4,500 because, you know, that's the way the route ended up being. Yeah, and I think next year's 3,900 or something. Yeah. Oh, a little it's the shorter. Shortest, it's the shortest one yet. Okay. Well, short is a relative term in this, but yeah. <laughs> one day, day and a half. <laughs> So yeah, so I really wanted to kind of go back and um, finish an event and it seemed like a pretty cool race. It was um, supported by Specialized and there was a a different route, so I wouldn't be doing many of the same roads at all. And the North Cape is kind of a, it's like the, 
it's just a magical place. It's a bit like the Pacific coast to me. It's like the end of the road and the world just drops off and you're, you know, looking up at the Arctic and I, you know, look forward to kind of going back there and, and, finishing there. So um, that event took place in 2019 and I uh, placed fifth, not third. I wish third, but. Oh, it was fifth. Sorry. Yeah, I know. I wish, I wish I was third, but it was, it was a great event. I really got to put together everything I learned in the Trans Am and the North Cape Tarifa. And I planned my time a lot, um, you know, better on the bike. I mm-hmm. didn't take as long as uh, breaks and I was just kind of, yeah, able to really pull in my efficiency and my fitness and yeah, it went, it went really well for me. So I was pretty, pretty stoked about that. And, you know, especially with the last two years of kind of staying closer to home to look back and be like, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe like I was on my bike, just pedaling through Belgium and Luxembourg. Like it was no big deal. You know, it it seems like a dream or something. Mm-hmm. And did you prefer starting or ending at the the North Cape, that, you know, 24-hour sun and all that stuff? I think I liked ending there. Yeah, it's a cool place to start as well. But I, I think I liked finishing there. Maybe because it's a bit more like, I guess, yeah, I don't know why I like finishing there. But okay. it was it was kind of a cool place to finish. I think because before a race, I'm full of like anxiety and self-doubt and I don't think I can appreciate a place fully necessarily. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, for the North Cape Tarifa, you get there a few hours or more before the race starts and you're just kind of like hanging out and you're chatting with people, but you're just like waiting to get going. Whereas when I finished there, like I could actually appreciate it because I had nowhere Uh, to be anymore. I could just kind of hang out and, um, you know, enjoy the the experience of actually being there instead of kind of, you know, having your mind filled with like all these what ifs and, you know, yeah. doubts about the future. I think it's on so many people's bucket list too. Like, I mean, I've looked so much at those pictures and you're like, man, just to be up there. And it's like, it's a bluff, I believe, right? Kind of. And you're like looking yeah. out over the ice and, oh man, just got to, got to get there <laughs> at some point. Before we transition to ultra distance bikepacking, I do believe you also, and I actually know you have the 24 hour world time trial championship title. How did this come to be? Why? What possessed you? Uh, So after I scratched from the North Cape Tarifa race, I wanted to complete an event successfully. So I registered for the 24 hour world time trial championships in 2018. And I didn't really have any place to to be after my summer in Europe. I was kind of transitioning from living in Saskatoon to living somewhere else. And I didn't know what that somewhere else would be. So I I just headed down to uh, Southern California to stay with my friend's parents in San Diego and train for this race. And it was an amazing experience. I, I treated myself like a professional athlete. I ate really well. I, you know, based my life around my training. I did a bit of writing um, and uh, I hung out with some, you know, folks in the neighborhood. But I didn't, you know, didn't have a job. I just got to train for this race oh, okay. and I competed. It was my first 24-hour race and I, I did really well. Um, I broke the course record by quite a bit, but someone else also broke the course record and, and beat me by like 10 minutes. So that was January. She's a fabulous athlete. Um, and after coming in second in 2018, I wanted to go back and win it in 2019. So I um, bought a time trial bike, which um, usually that's what you use on a time trial. <laughs> Makes sense. And yeah. And then I upgraded my wheels and I, I put a bit more effort into kind of a structured training for the event. And I, I learned so much that first year about um 
you know, working with a support crew and uh, kind of doing a different event. It's it's a lot. Um, yeah, it's a lot different than doing these long ultra distance self-supported races. It's it's kind of like a sprint, but it's not really a sprint. It's still pretty long time to be on the bike and there's not much variety. You're just over the arrow bars kind of, you know, hammering out consistent power as the, um, you know, sun sets and then the darkness comes and the sun rises oh, wow. and the day gets really, really hot and then it's all over and uh, yeah, you start to miss it. Oh, wow. Cool. And this is a time where you had a coach in Switzerland, I presume? That's right. Yeah. Okay. So he uh, agreed to coach me in 2018 when I was uh, kind of starting to plan for my first attempt. And I think he kind of realized I didn't know what I was doing. And he, you know, <laughs> offered to jump on board and coach me. And I was like, yes, yes, please, Brian, anything. <laughs> so he helped uh, set up that training plan for my 2018 attempt. And we've continued to work together since. So um, yeah, we have a really great friendship. I am going to head over to Majorca this spring and, and do some um, ride leading at his uh, training camps there and then I'll be crewing for him because he's doing race across America this summer. Oh, nice. Yeah, I'm really excited. Um, He's looking forward to this a lot. He was supposed to do it in 2020, so it's been put off a couple years and he's, you know, looking really strong and pretty, pretty stoked about it and I'm excited to, you know, to be there to support him and kind of repay him for all of this, like, you know, generosity and knowledge sharing he's done with me over the past couple of years. Okay. That's amazing. I mean, top of the world for 30 to 39 year old women, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I guess when I did it the second year, I broke the course record and uh, did 740 kilometers, I think 740.8. And that's the women's course record. So that yeah beats all the previous female records on the course. Um, This year when the event was going to happen, I had planned to go and my partner got COVID and we were going to drive down together, but I had been around him. So we ended up self-isolating and not racing. Mm. Um, So I watched like very attentively because there was some really strong ladies racing, but they had pretty bad weather this year. So I I think the weather kind of stopped any new FKTs from being um, established. So my, my course record holds, but I got to be there in 2022 because I don't think it's going to last much longer. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. So you, you did uh, make a bit of a change um, in the last couple of years from, or I guess mostly really kind of this year predominantly, but to, to endurance mountain biking or bike packing. What led to this? I mean, to, to trade up the road bike for the mountain bike. Yeah, there's a few things. Um, in 2019, I started working as a home care attendant for a fellow with a spinal cord injury. And uh, he's a bit of uh, an in- adrenaline junkie. Um, he did downhill mountain biking when he was younger, skateboarded a lot. So working for him, I watched all these like mountain bike videos. We were always watching stuff off of like Pinkbike and bikepacking.com and, you know, like Johan's videos and stuff. Yeah. And it opened my eyes to getting off road and uh, I assisted him to do adaptive biking, oh, cool. um, you know, in, in the Okanagan. And so that was my first time really getting off road and just realizing how uh, awesome I felt being out in, in nature. It was completely different than, you know, like hammering down the highways. So I think he opened up my eyes to kind of all of these, um, all of these trails and quad routes and paths that were, you know, just in my backyard, but I I wasn't exploring because I was stuck on the road. Mm -hmm. The other thing that happened was, uh, COVID happened and I I kind of worried that like, (laughs) (laughs) when did that go down? (laughs) Yeah, I kind of didn't know if I was going to get to travel much in the future. And I I realized that if I wanted to be happy in the Okanagan, I had to get off the highways. 
there's a lot of great road cycling here, but there's also a lot of traffic and there's some pretty sketchy um, highway kind of areas that I really didn't like doing, mm. but there's not alternatives on the road. So I was interested in kind of exploring other places. And and if you get off the pavement, there's just like unlimited forest service roads. There's a KVR. There's so many, so many places and options to kind of go and explore. So that was, um, yeah, that's kind of what prompted my move. I started looking for a bike this spring and I think three people had been like, you should get a salsa cutthroat. You should get a salsa cutthroat. And I hate doing research. So I was like, that's what I'm going to get. And I called all the bike shops and they all like laughed at me and were like, ha, ha, ha. Come back in 2023. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's on back order. Um, but I found a used one and uh, I went over and, you know, made this long drive to go and pick up this bike. And uh, yeah, I just fell in love with it. I named her Amelia and signed up for the BC Epic, maybe like, I don't know, a month before I got the bike because I knew that I, I knew that I wanted to get off road, but I needed some like, you know, push to do it. Mm -hmm. So I was like, if I sign up for this race and I'll have to buy a bike. And nice. uh, yeah, so I signed up for the race, got the bike, started training. My dad has a gravel um, bike that he converted into an electric bike. So uh, he was like my, you know, bike buddy this spring. And we went out and explored like all these uh, kind of roads up to little lakes up here um, in the Okanagan and Lake Country. Yeah, just kind of getting confident off-road. I'm not a very good bike handler. I learned a bit from, you know, working with my client and he uh, taught me how to bunny hop. I'm still terrible at it, but <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of what led to my uh, off-road journey. And, you know, I'm, I'm so glad that I got another bike and mm -hmm. I, it does things that my road bike could never do, right? It's pretty exciting. Absolutely. Are you going to do a lot more road endurance racing or do you see it like a little a temporary well, aside from the 24 hour time trials? Do you see yourself transitioning a bit more to the, to the off-road scene? I think I'm going to do the off-road stuff for um, like touring and adventure stuff and, and bikepacking uh, for sure. I'd like to do a, a gravel Everesting. Um, yeah, I'm nice. interested in doing, I guess, probably a mix of events. Um yeah, next year, I think most of my events are, are actually on the road because they're all events I signed up for in 2020. And I've just been like waiting to do them. Okay. Um, but I do think that, you know, I'm, I'm going to put a lot of miles on this bike. And yeah, it's it's just really exciting to be on these kind of bikepacking routes where you, you don't know, like, you know, you go around a corner and it could be gravel or pavement or trail or mm -hmm. quad trail or literally like a wall of bushes and you have to... <laughs> Like yeah. figure out your way through or it. a swamp <laughs> or a swamp. Yeah. Oh gosh. A swamp. But it's just, um, yeah, it, it brings me back to all those adventures I had when I was a kid and you'd be out in the forest and, you know, just kind of like making your own fun and, and finding your way around. So I think it's, uh, yeah, it, it really brings out that like childlike wonder in me. That's so a, a really I, I definitely, um, have future plans. Yeah. And it's nice to get away from cars for a while. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think like riding off road, it's cool to be able to ride with somebody and actually have a conversation with them because mm -hmm. you're, you know, on this trail or on this quiet road and you can actually speak to them because you're not like riding, you know, in each other's draft or, or you know, worrying about taking up too much space yeah. or, you know, having a car honk at you because you're riding side by side. So socially, I, I think I'm going to plan to kind of do my, you know, chit chat rides with friends off road. Nice. And so let's talk BC Epic. It's huge. Really one of Canada's premier bikepacking routes. It's been around for a while. People everywhere know about it. Um, maybe not everywhere in the world, but in Canada. What is it? Tell us about it. 
Yeah, so the the BC Epic is a self-supported, um, I guess, point-to-point bikepacking race from Merritt, BC to Fernie on uh, Kettle Valley Rail Trail, um, back roads, a little bit of single track, a little bit of pavement. It mostly follows the Can- Trans-Canada Trail route. So it was established by uh, Leonard Pretorius from Kamloops, and um, he wanted to kind of do like a tour divide simulation in, in BC that he could ride. And that's how the event started. And um, it's since continued to grow. And it's it's a yeah, it's a pretty cool route. It's somewhat remote, but not super remote. Mm-hmm. And in terms of like bikepacking events, it's uh, it's fairly easy terrain. Like it's, okay. um, you know, you could. You could do it without having a whole lot of technical skill. What is like the, I mean, you have a, you have a salsa cutthroat that I'm assuming has like somewhere over two inch tires, 2.2s or something like that. Yeah. I use 2.2s. A lot of people do it on a gravel bike with skinnier tires. Yeah. Uh, I okay, think those so people you can do, you can do the BC Epic on a gravel. Yeah. Yeah. yeah oh, okay. You can. Good to know. Cause I don't have a big fat bike yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So tell us more. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty cool event because it takes you through different kind of like ecosystems. I signed up for it um, and got my dad on board to drive me to the star line in Merritt. Merritt's not very far from Kelowna. It's like okay. an hour and a half or something like that. So we camped out in the parking lot of the dog park. We brought my parents' dog, Sadie, with us. And uh, it was it was cool to kind of get to the start, you know, the night before and just like have everything ready in the van and, and be ready to go. The weather forecast has shifted to this like pretty... Um, like once in a century heat dome event about a week before and the heat dome was supposed to start on the morning that the epic rolled out and so leonard had been like you know sending us emails and posting online um just kind of warnings be like hey like carry a lot of water like look out for each other this is a really potentially dangerous situation um so you know just like be aware um that temperatures are going to get really hot and uh yeah and be ready for it so this kind of like yeah it initially scared me and then i kind of went into planning mode and started thinking about ways i could deal with it so i I went into the race pretty well prepared for for the heat i um yeah i hoped i knew what was coming yeah do you want me to kind of give you a rundown of how it went down sure yeah okay well it uh yeah rolled out in the morning and um it was uh it was pretty cool to be part of a grand depart again after Mm -hmm. uh you know a year or two of of no events. Yeah. And I was um I was kind of in the back of the front pack at the beginning and just kind of, you know, observing my um my surroundings and I get a little shy sometimes so I wasn't really chatting with people and I was kind of beating myself up for not chatting with folks because like again, it's the first time I've been around a bunch of people. It's a really awesome opportunity to connect and and just say like, "Hey, where are you from?" like, you know, mm-hmm. what uh tell me about your bike. Um, but I, I didn't really do any of that. I just kind of rode in the back of the front of the pack until things started to thin out a bit. Um, the first section between Merritt and Pin- or Merritt and Princeton is pretty like rough and, and rocky um, and a lot of loose gravel. So I was definitely glad to have my bigger tires for that. And then there's like a million cattle guards and I ended up riding with like maybe five or six guys kind of at the front of the pack. And we were taking turns opening the gates for each other. Um, sorry, cattle gates, not guards. Okay. Like yeah. so there's these terrible gates that you have to open and close and you have to open them and close them because they're on farmer's properties and you don't want to be an asshole, but they're super obnoxious, like barbed wire and rickety boards and stuff. They're not, they're not very easy to deal with. And when you're trying to make good time, they're yeah. pretty big nuisance. 
but yeah, so, uh, so then I got to chat with people a bit and that was nice to have some conversation. Um, I rolled into to Princeton and I, I knew I was near the front of the pack and I just wanted to kind of make my first few stops really efficient. That was my game plan. How far so is Princeton into the race? About a hundred K. Okay. Maybe 120, but yeah, about about 100k, yeah. Um, and and by then it was like you know noon or something, and it was already pretty hot. And uh, like you know, there is a climb out of Princeton, so you start on this rail grade climb. And rail grade like sounds easy, but it just means that you are going like really slow uphill, and it's super hot, and it goes on and on and on forever. Um, but I filled my um, hydration you know, reservoir with ice. And so I had this like cool water to drink. I stuffed a bunch of ice on the back of my shirt mm-hmm. and, uh, and I, I, you know, didn't stop for more than like five minutes. So I kind of popped out ahead of a bunch of other people and I passed the lead rider on the hill out of Princeton. And, uh, I guess I never looked back. <laughs> nice. Do you think it, like your, your randoneering experience, like, and this, these skills you learned from those guys at those gas stops or guys and girls, do you think it really played into this and how, how quick you are in the, as you, you, you do refills and resupplies? Yeah, for sure. Um, like if I'm not sleep deprived and being stupid, like I, I think I can get in and out of gas stations pretty quick and I kind of go on autopilot with like the food I choose and, and stuff like that. And I try not to get hung up, um, on, you know, on, specific things like you know if i'm craving a subway sandwich but there's a lineup i'm not going to go get a subway okay. sandwich i'm going to sandwich at the gas station and i'm going to eat it on my bike and it's not going to taste as good but like i'll you know i'll take that instead i remember one of the first round rides i did we all walked into a diner and the first thing i did was go to the bathroom because i had to pee and i got back to the table and they were like we ordered for you and i was like what and they were like you went to the bathroom and we ordered for you because we couldn't wait so if you want food you're going to eat what they bring to you and i was like Oh, so this is a lesson. You don't like go to the bathroom first. <laughs> That's an awesome you lesson. Order. Yeah. Yeah. Go pee is. after you pay and while you're waiting. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So they would just like order and then they would ask for the bill and the, the server would be like, you just sat down and they'd be like, just, just bring the bill. We want to get it taken care of. <laughs> so, yeah, those were two lessons I learned, but I, I don't think I stopped for any takeout or any restaurant food. It was just purely gas station stuff. I started out with some hydration mix in my water reservoir and then I kind of topped that up um, a few times and I brought a bunch of gels and because it was so hot, like your digestive system just goes to crap. And so I was not eating as much. Um, So it was was really difficult. Like I had this plan to like eat before bed and when I first kind of started out in the morning, but I didn't really sleep that much. So that kind of fell apart. Mm. Um, I'm glad I could keep eating, but it was basically like gels and liquids. So chocolate milk, juice, um, oh, I can't imagine it. chugging chocolate. I know Leo Wilcox does it too, but I'm like, I don't have the stomach for it. I think I just puke it all up if I drink chocolate milk. <laughs> <laughs> so what was your goal for the BC Epic? So I wanted to uh, set a new women's FKT fastest oh. known time. I knew Janie Hayes had the fastest known time and it was like four days, 10 hours um, and change, I think. And I knew the male time was like two days, 16 hours, I think. Wow. So, that's a huge yeah, difference. Yeah. 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 And I'd like spoken with Janie and and she said that, you know, she had a lot of fun on the Epic and, you know, drank beer and ate pizza and uh, (laughs) kind of gave me the impression that she didn't really try that hard. Uh (laughs) So I went in trying to beat her time, but ultimately to be as competitive as I I could as a, you know, a bike packer. Um, I didn't go in, you know, trying to to win it, but I wanted to be competing and I had my eye on the other dots and, you know, I went in 
to it with like a really like, you know, sportful mentality, I guess. So when I set up my race plan, I didn't want to sleep for the first 24 hours because I knew that all the other race winners and top tier competitors had, you know, kind of pushed through that first day without sleeping. Um, and uh, I'd already done 24 hours without sleep and I mm-hmm. knew it would be difficult. But with the heat in the day, it was actually quite a relief to kind of get to those nighttime hours and, you know, know that um, I could relax a little bit, you know, when you're um, out of the sun and your body just gets a bit of a break. I see. And um, do you take any like caffeine pills and stuff I, or five I hour do, energies, yeah. things like that? Yeah, I definitely take caffeine pills. Uh, in, in regular life, coffee is good enough. Yeah. But, you know, you don't really feel like drinking coffee when it's like 40 something degrees. It's bumping <laughs> um, all over you. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> I go for those like terrible monster energy drinks and things like that as well. Um, and uh, I, I try not to like overdo it. You know, I feel like once you have too much caffeine, your heart kind of feels like it's going to burst out of your chest mm-hmm. like a, you know, little hummingbird or something. So I, yeah, I try to wait until I feel like I'm getting a little drowsy or something mm-hmm. and, um, and then, and then take it. I, I also like, if I get the chance, I always do like fresh juices, like carrot juice or, oh. you know, kale smoothies or whatever. You don't usually find those things at gas stations, mm-hmm. but, but when you do, I go for it. I find them pretty energizing. Oh, nice. Yeah. First time I took caffeine pills, I didn't really know what I was doing. And I just looked at them and I, they looked like chew tablets to me and I chewed them. So bad, but holy crap, the energy, man. Wow. <laughs> like instant. <laughs> you probably got it faster because you chewed it. <laughs> yeah. My, I think the only faster way would have been to snort them or something, but who knows? <laughs> so your riding hours on the Epic, um, or, and also like in general, when you're doing these off-road events, is it aside from the first 24 hours, are you still aiming for that four hour window at nighttime or does that change drastically? I think I, uh, I think I know I have to sleep, but it's, it's trying to find that minimal effective dose of sleep, I guess. So the first night I did lay down for maybe an hour in total. And, uh, and I, I mostly just like, you know, got out of my sweaty chamois, laid in my bivy and just kind of let myself unwind. And I felt pretty revitalized when I got back on the bike. I probably only slept for like 25 minutes, but I felt like much better when I hopped back on the bike. Um, and the second night I, I knew that I had to get some sleep and I kind of figured I had two options. I could ride to the ferry terminal and, um, you know, baby outside the ferry terminal so that I knew that I would make the first sailing or I could get a motel and sleep and maybe get a better quality sleep, but I would be a bit farther from the ferry terminal. So I'd have to get up earlier and, um, and, and make sure I, I made that first sailing. So I opted to get a, a motel because I, I figured I would get a better quality of sleep mm-hmm. there. But the thing with motels is you always waste time. You know, you end up like taking a shower. Checking and, in. Like, yeah, checking yeah. in. Like there's there's just wasted moments. So I don't know if that was the best decision. Okay. I, I did sleep really well in a bed, but uh, I, I think I probably would have wasted less time if I had just like sped off to the terminal and, and nap there, which I think is what... Tom did when he, you know, set the record a couple of years before. So yeah, and then just, you know, hopefully you'll be tired enough that you can crash out and sleep anywhere. And the temperatures were certainly warm enough that you could sleep outside without, you know, any special gear. Yeah. And what are some of the other challenges of the BC Epic? I mean, particularly this past year, you said the heat was a huge factor. Um, anything else that played into it? It's like a pretty rough gravel route. I think that, uh, yeah, like I've toured it and it's not so bad if you're just touring it, but if you're racing it, you just get kind of worn down from like being, you know, bumped and 
jarred around for that long. There's a there's a climb over I think it's Great Creek Pass and it's fifteen hundred it. meters. It's a pretty steady climb. I don't remember what the grade is. I think it's like eight point six percent. I hope I'm not lying about that, but it's a pretty steep long climb. Um, and if you don't have the gearing for it, it can be absolutely brutal. And I think a lot of people end up walking parts of it. Um, I didn't need to walk up it, but you know, you just like have to commit to, to a few hours mm-hmm. of moving very, very slowly. And I did it in the morning, so it wasn't hot. So that was pretty, um, pretty helpful. What is your setup on the cutthroat? Oh yeah. So, um, I have a 32 like wolf tooth in the front mm-hmm. and then I think the rear is like 10 to 42 maybe okay yeah yeah it seems to work for most things like i run into gears sometimes when i'm uh, descending but i guess i just like you know kick back and relax a little bit <laughs> yeah um yeah it gets me up pretty much like you know most things yeah so. i think when you're on a like a mountain-esque type bike you don't really need crazy speed to go downhill because you know just especially if you're in a racing thing, because most of those times that's when you should be like building up the energy. So when you hit that next climb, you can power through, and, you know, just get up to a norm of what, a whatever the bike gets to you and then just cruise it. Yeah. Yeah. And like coming from a road biking background, like that was a hard idea for me to accept yeah. that I would like top out so early, but you know, I'm not a very um, technically skilled rider. So I think it's probably good that there's a bit of a governor on my descent speed, you know? <laughs> like- uh, so I was going to ask you that, like how has, uh, well, we'll, we could save it for later, but I guess you could answer now is um, how have your technical skills, how much growth have you seen over just this last, this summer and uh, these couple big events you did? Yeah, I think I've gotten a lot better. Um, I haven't had any like, you know, catastrophic wipeouts or anything. There's a bit of single track, a single track on the Epic and it was like really sandy and pretty, <laughs> pretty challenging with a lot of hike of bikes. And I don't think I fully comprehended like how much, uh, walking you do when you're bikepacking okay. sometimes. Like I didn't really understand that that was just normal. So I was a little bit grumpy about having to walk my bike so much in the Epic. Um, on future rides, I, I don't complain because I understand that that is just part of getting off road. But at first I was like, why would they make this bike race with walking in mm-hmm. it? Like, this isn't like I was a thinking true hiking <laughs> challenge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is dumb. This is like a hiking trail. Why are we here? Yeah. But I understand that sometimes you need to connect roads and um, yeah. And just, you just have to hike sometimes. That's yeah. fine. I get it. But in the Epic, I was pretty grumpy about that. Uh, yeah, so it's definitely improved through some just experience. I, I got to tour a bit in Oregon um, last, not last month, in July after the Epic. And I was just kind of touring around on the back roads by myself. And I had a chance to just get more experience on, on okay. different types of, you know, surfaces. And, and I improved quite a bit there. Um, yeah, but in we might talk about this later in the Alberta Rockies. I thought I was going to fall off the mountain like uh, several times. Okay. It was definitely like uh, a stretch of my comfort zone. <laughs> okay. And um, so, yeah, finishing up with the BC Epic, you said it, there was quite a lot of resupply points. Were there any super long stretches where you didn't have any? And, and how did, um, how did food and water management play into that? And how did you prepare for that? Uh, so I traveled with, um, you know, just tabs and I filled up in creeks and stuff like that. Yeah. I don't think there was any times where I, I really ran out of water. I could always like fill up. And because my appetite was so like terrible, I didn't really honestly care too much about the resupplies for food because mm. I had my stash of, you know, gels and bars and I, I wasn't really depleting them very quickly anyways. I can't even think of like, th- there were definitely longer stretches, like for instance, between, um, 
Grand Forks and Castlegar. I think that's a pretty big pass and, and over a hundred kilometers. And, um, you know, if you're traveling at night, uh, there's stretches where things will be closed. I think my longest stretch was probably going through Penticton and then you, um, you know, climb up through the KBR to Shoot Lake. And then when I got to the next resupply, um, in, um, Beaverdale, it was closed and oh, then wow. Rock Creek, it was closed. And I don't think I filled up again until like Greenwood, like, I don't know. I don't know how far that was, but it was from like, 6 p.m. in the evening until like 9 a.m. in the morning or oh, something. Oh, wow. That's huge. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I was on the, like, I was biking most of the time. Yeah. I wasn't sleeping. So it was, it was a pretty long stretch, but I had food still and I had, you know, filled up, uh, I think I filled up my water at a campground or something in a creek. So yeah, I was fine that way. Um, it's always weird though, right? When you walk into a resupply and you haven't like, you know, really been off the bike much or interacted with people and you, you know, you put your mask on and your face is all dirty and <laughs> they're just like, where did you come from? What is wrong? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, a resupply is so important. It's so hard. Like, and then planning it. I, I know I was doing a bikepacking route this summer and I think I filled up at a spring at nine o'clock PM with three bottles on my bike and I didn't refill until 8am and I was just, I was getting dreadful and like I could hear water running and some little creeks, but I knew there was off like down a hill and it was middle of the night and pitch black. And I'm like, Oh man. Oh. So I just kept going kind of a mistake. I probably should have stopped, but anyways, that's what you learn, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's always later that you realize that like, Oh, that might've been my last water source for, Oh God knows how far. <laughs> yeah. And I know the, um, I know the Alberta Rockies has some really remote sections. Did the Epic have any like super remote off grid sections where, you know, you couldn't check the tracker and it was just, you know, um, you just had to, to rely on your own skills and um, in the same sense that the AR has it. A lot of it is with, uh, like a lot of it is out of cell phone okay. reception. Um, but it didn't seem like as far off grid as the AR 700. Okay. Like you, yeah, you really feel like you're in the middle of nowhere. Um, whereas the Epic, like a lot of it is on the trans Canada trail. So, you know, you could be bumping into other people. I don't think there was many people on the trail besides the, you know, race competitors just because of the heat dome. But I think normally it's like pretty busy in the summer. Oh, okay. And did you know you were in the lead when you were coming up towards the end or was it kind of like a little bit of a shock or surprise at some points? Yeah, no, I realized I was in the lead pretty early on. Um, I was talking with uh, Kenton Gilchrist and he was doing a little dip like documentary um so he's driving around with the media car oh, okay. and he specifically wanted to talk uh to female competitors and then i ended up in the lead so he like followed me for a lot of the race so he was kind of like at my side um videoing me and you know when i'd stop he'd you know like put a microphone on my collar and ask me some questions oh okay <laughs> so uh yeah so i knew that if he was around i was in the lead still <laughs> <laughs> that's a good way to know it and uh how did it feel finishing first overall it was awesome. I was um I was pretty excited because I, you know, I have never won a uh, an event like all you know all out before. Um in the 2019 24 hour time trials, I think I placed like fifth overall and so four men a sixth overall, four men and one like two man team beat me. So to come in fifth in an event like that was pretty exciting and you know same with the um Northgate 4000, like to place fifth out of over a hundred people, like that felt awesome. But to, to kind of come in first, I, I 
yeah, I, I, I'd like to say I was overwhelmed with emotion, but I was mostly just tired and <laughs> I crossed the finish line, you know, with a smile on my face. And Leonard was there, the, the race organizer, and um, Kenton was there, the, the film guy to, you know, get some video footage. And my dad was there with the dog, Sadie, to pop a bottle of bubbly and, you know, nice. say, well done. It was it was a very low-key finish. And I, I, I just kind of... Uh, yeah, like I was, I was happy it was done. I was happy with how I performed and I fell a little apart on the last like maybe 50, 60 kilometers from Elko. The terrain gets pretty rough and there's a bunch of unnamed forest service roads and okay. I had, um, wiped out and dropped my e-trex and I couldn't find it because I was just like so tired and confused. Um, I went back the next day and found it actually, but I had to like, you know, use my cell phone to navigate with the ride with GPS maps, which was like fine, but it was, you know, it was a little bit annoying to be like, yeah. Oh, I maybe just lost my navigation unit because I didn't put it on properly. Um, and yeah, I was kind of at a, a bit of a low point at the end. I was playing music on my, um, my phone just to, you know, feel like less alone and to maybe mm -hmm. like scare off any wildlife in the area. And I was having these conversations with myself about what I would say to Leonard when I got to the finish, like <laughs> all my complaints of the route, like cataloged in the too, right? <laughs> yeah. Out loud, of course. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I, I finally got to see him at the finish and I was just like, thank you for planning this amazing route. Like you are a, an awesome human being, you know, all of those like earlier, um, like imagine conversations just right. like thrown out the window. <laughs> <laughs> so I was in, I was in a pretty rough state and, and just, you know, my body was, uh, was done with those gravel yeah. roads. I was definitely wishing I could be on the pavement because there's a paved route to the finish that you could just take, but it's gotta be on gravel because that's what the race is. Um, just to add so yeah, a little yeah. bit of suck to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's funny how that the conversations in your head are usually pretty, pretty vulgar and pretty rude. And the things you're thinking about the organizing, you're like, Oh my God, you, and, and then at the end you're like, actually, you know what? Thank you. It was so good. Like it challenged me, it did everything as it should. So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I think because it was my first kind of off-road event, like I just didn't understand, like, these are the parameters of bikepack racing. Like you just have to do this stuff and it's, it's part of the fun and part of the challenge. And after I finished the Epic, I, uh, I, I realized that, you know, all these little special sections were, were what made it the, the mm -hmm. event that it was. Right. Yeah. And, um, so you also did the Alberta Rockies in August and it's 700 and something kilometers long i'm not exactly sure how many exactly but uh you finished third and first female what was that like um how does it compare to the epic they're both i think um like top tier bikepacking events i would like suggest anyone to uh to head over to the rockies or you know the interior bc and and, and do them if, if you're looking for a short event to do they're both really really great the alberta rockies is a lot more single track and more remote and more challenging terrain with um longer points between refuel sections. Okay. So you, you have to be a little more self-sufficient and able to, to take care of yourself. And I think it maybe attracts people that are a little more experienced, a little more of a, a grittier crowd. The route uh, has a pretty long hike bike that I totally didn't realize. I heard about this I mean, from Theo. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's over like middle Kootenai pass. And um, I don't know, it took like a couple hours. I was a uh, in the lead at that point with uh, Kyle Messier. And so we were doing, uh, I think he called it a, a walkie talkie and we were just walking and talking together like nice. the whole way up because like, you know, what else can you do? And it's so steep. You can only hike 
so quickly. Um, and I felt so unfit on that hike a bike. I was like, Oh my God, you have to do cardio, Megan. Like you have to go to the gym and do a Stairmaster <laughs> or something like your legs can pedal. My ligaments but, like, didn't sign really. up for this. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I, I felt like my pulse was just racing. I wanted to like, you know, just stop and sit down on the ground. But I was like, I can't Megan, you can't show weakness in front of the enemy, the frenemy. But, uh, yeah, and it was great. It was really fun to ride or walk up with Kyle. Um, and then he just like ditched me at the top. He was like, so when you're just standing, you know to keep your weight back, right? And I was like, yeah, I know. I'll do my best. And then he just like shot down the mountain and I literally like walked down in his tracks. Oh, like, no way. Is it Was it that like yeah. crazy a descent? Uh, in my mind it was, yeah. but other people might disagree with me. It was just this like loose rock slope and he, he, he flew down and I literally like, you know, waved goodbye to <laughs> him and draw he's, job. he's gone. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, he, you know, he's a good mountain biker. He's yeah. got um, a lot more experience living in Canmore right now and stuff. He, he can go and ride these mountains and, um, and, and get better at them, I guess. <laughs> And that really showed. Uh, so yeah, when I watched him right away, I was like, okay, Megan, yes, yeah, you better get walking. But yeah, it, it's a really cool event. And there's a, a lot of really cool camp spots, lots of good water refill, like creeks, just pristine, you know, mountain water. And then there's kind of like these cattle areas, which I probably wouldn't fill up in. But uh, yeah, it was, it was a really cool route. Uh, Unfortunately, there was um, some fires in the area, so it was oh, pretty okay. smoky. So it was kind of like weirdly apocalyptic when we rode out in the morning. And um, the smoke made it a bit hard to breathe, I think. Um, you know, like yeah. you could breathe just fine. But after breathing it all day, like I definitely had a wheeze in my lungs. And okay. I don't think it's the, yeah, like the healthiest thing to be doing. But at the same time, it wasn't that bad. It started out kind of warm. And then I think like a few hours after I crossed the finish line, the temperature just dropped and it started like pounding rain. So everyone who came in after I did oh, in third place, yeah, they just got like, like drenched and it was snowing at high elevations. Like, you know, there were folks like sleeping in um, one of the backwoods cabins because there was, there was snow coming down. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it, uh, it really shifts gears quickly when you're at high elevation. So I think that was probably a big difference. Um, in the Epic, you're not really at high elevation very much. Oh, There's okay. one big pass where it's, mm -hmm. you know, in the Alberta Rockies, 700, you're, you're high the whole time. So things are, are potentially, you know, could get a lot worse, mm -hmm. a lot quicker. Okay. And I know that, uh, you, like, as, uh, as you mentioned, you and Kyle were in the lead towards the end and, um, and, and I, I know you listened to Theo's interview and <laughs> he, he didn't realize he had somehow passed you two. And when he, when Kyle kind of caught up to him, that's when he kind of realized, Oh crap, I was in the lead. Like what happened to Megan? Where is she? And he's like, dude, he's coming. <laughs> uh, she's coming. What, uh, what happened? Like, I mean, obviously you guys aren't, you know, you don't have cell coverage, so you don't know exactly where people are. I, I guess if you could take us through that last day or so or the evening, um, what was going on and all that. Yeah, for sure. So um, it was a really challenging route for me because it was a little out of my um, range of, of skills. Um, and I didn't... I. 
I just don't think I understood like how draining riding all that single track stuff would be. And I, you know, I slept a bit in the first night. I had a pretty quick little baby, like at a, at a park on a picnic table. And I pushed pretty hard on the second day, but I think I probably pushed a bit too hard. Okay. And by the time, you know, night rolled around, I had passed the other two guys, but I was just kind of going into that red zone. And I was really excited to kind of have this lead and, and know that I was approaching the finish. But I was also just like depleting my energy reserves. I was messaging my mom on the phone and I was like, you know, I'm thinking about getting a motel and getting a couple hours of sleep, but I don't know if I should. And, and she was like, those guys are, they're back behind you. They'll sleep at all. You know, they'll sleep through too as well. And, and, and just get a motel, Megan, I'll pay for it. And I was like, ah, okay. <laughs> and yeah, so I got a motel. I, uh, I, I went to sleep. They were, you know, the next town back and I woke up and they were like 40 kilometers ahead of me. And I was like, Oh, oh man. man, I, uh, really blew that one. <laughs> so there you and go. Theo. So- There's a story. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was a pretty uh, a pretty lousy feeling to wake up to, right? And you know, I'm brushing my teeth and I'm waiting for the tracker to to update, and then I just see that I've been totally dropped. Um, yeah, and so I, I busted out of the hotel room. I think it was in like Elkford. Um, and the the plus side is I felt really good because I had slept well. So I had a super fun ride to the finish. You know, I was just energized. I was charging after um, Theo and Kyle. And yeah. I, I knew that I was too far back to catch them in, unless, you know, one of them had a mechanical or, or something like that. But um, it was it was really fun to be like the pursuer and be like, okay, like, you know, you're in third. Let's see how much of the gap you can close. Like maybe, you know, you can get to the finish before before they leave and celebrate with them. Like that would be really cool. Um, so yeah, so I just, you know, busted my butt to the finish and it was, uh, they had changed the route because of one of the fires. So we had to reroute. So it was actually a lot easier for the final, maybe like 50 or 60 K. So it was, uh, yeah, it wasn't that challenging of a ride. There wasn't much more single track. And I was like, Oh man, did you really need to sleep anyways? Like you would have been fine. But, uh, yeah, lesson learned. I think like ideally I wouldn't have gotten a motel room. I would have like maybe um, not. 30 minute nap or something. And That's right. Yeah. And, you know, temperatures were pretty mild. I could have just babied outside somewhere and, and had that little rest and, and hop back on the bike and, you know, kind of played it out from there. Um, so I, I kind of feel like I, yeah, I maybe didn't play that one right. But at the same time, like I think that both Theo and Kyle are, are much stronger technical riders than okay. me. and. They, you know, they did that part of the ride much better. And I, I wish that I had, uh, you know, I was kind of relying on my endurance to carry me through. So when I took that long nap, I, yeah, I definitely blew it. <laughs> well, I know Theo, like, even said that, like, Kyle is such a strong rider. He was like, I don't know how I, I won this because Kyle is just so, so powerful and, and you as well. And uh, so I guess it's just, you know, it's what can happen over two and a half days and just little things. And, and on that same note, I mean, finishing first woman overall, third overall is awesome. And, you know, you learned a lesson. If you would have not made the mistake going forward, you could be in an even bigger race and made that mistake then. So at least now you have it and you know it, it's cataloged and moving forward, you're, you're more prepared. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, uh, it was really fun to, you know, to get to satisfy my competitive desires by, you know, being able to compete again. Like I, I didn't pull off a a second win this summer, but to be able to consistently compete is is definitely one of my goals. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, um, it's pretty awesome to just be up at the the pointy end and trading places with these like really awesome athletes and get to, uh, you know, get to ride with them and get to, get to be part of that action. Like that, that to me is like a, 
yeah, really great feeling. So yeah, we'll see. I'm uh, I'm excited to see what Theo does next. He, uh, yeah, he's he's very consistent. I think he's understated and consistent, yeah, and amazing. that's a deadly like um, pairing in yeah. these events. Like yeah. because he doesn't, you know, he doesn't come across as like a, a a threat, and then he just doesn't stop riding, and that's how you win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, um, yeah, he beat my BT seven hundred uh, by two hours, and I was like, oh, two hours, like. <laughs> What are your plans next year? You did mention you have a bunch of road stuff lined up next year. Um, what kind of things are you doing? Uh, so in 2020, I signed up to do the race around Denmark. That's a 1600 kilometer self-supported uh, race. There's a supported version as well, but I'm doing the self-supported one. And uh, I also signed up to do the transcontinental. So that's a, oh, a nice. one. Yeah. yeah. So um, the race around Denmark is in May. The transcontinental is in July. I'm going to fly over to uh, Majorca to help out with these training camps mm-hmm. in, in April, crew for my coach in June, do a little training in Switzerland before the TCR kicks off in July. And uh, fingers crossed, uh, I'd like to do the Badlands race in Spain in early September next year. And that's, um, it's a gravel race. I think it's seven or 800 kilometers and it's really hot and climby. And I think I've, you know, shown that I'm okay in the heat. Sweet. So we'll just see how I handle the yeah, hills. Nice. So you'll be bringing several bikes with you. So I'm going to bring my road bike and then go home and get my gravel bike and come back with it for Badlands because uh, I only have 90 days kind of in, I can only spend 90 days in Europe. So I have oh, to right. figure it out a little mm. bit. Yeah, that's right. The problems, huh? <laughs> I know, right? Like, and this is all, you know, I, I feel like I'm saying these are my plans, but like, who knows what it could all will change. happen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. might end up doing the Epic and the, um, the you know, AR700 again. That wouldn't be the worst thing in the that world either. That would not be terrible. Yeah. You could also come to Ontario. There's lots of good gravel biking here. Yeah. Now that I have a bike for it. Yeah. Ooh. I've also developed a route. Um, so there's going to be more coming out on that lately, but uh, soon I should say oh, cool. it's uh, 1300 kilometers long with 16,000 meters of elevation. So 16,000. That's, that sounds like a lot. It'd be fun. Come on down. Yeah. And then there are some <laughs> other routes as well. So um, yeah, the butter tart 700, which the FKT and uh, the log drivers waltz is in the capital region as well. So super cool routes here. So if you don't go to Europe, you know where to be. <laughs> Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I've heard about both of those ones and uh, they definitely sound appealing. And uh, what are you going to be doing in your off season? How do you, how are you going to train this winter? Um, so I've, I've been in Portland uh, visiting my partner and I've done a bunch of hiking um, just to kind of do something a little bit different. Um, I just got back to Kelowna. So I'm going to be kind of doing more structured indoor training um, with trainer road on my trainer because I like how that fits into my schedule. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I'm going to buy some three inch tires for the Cuddy though. So I can do a little uh, bit of like winter biking on yeah. it, um, which would be cool. I haven't winter biked since I lived in Saskatchewan. So um, yeah, it'll be fun to get outside. I took up snowshoeing last year, so I look forward to doing some pretty cool like snowshoe hikes in the in the yeah the Okanagan region. Is there um, a lot of snow I, in the Okanagan? Is it kind of like is it more than you would get like around Vancouver and all that stuff? Yeah, definitely. It's a uh, it's pretty dry here, so there's not that much snow kind of in the valleys, but there's a lot in the mountains. Wow. So there's you know Big White and Apex and Silver Star all pretty close. So there's a yeah, it's kind of valleys or mountains. Um, so it's easy to get to that kind of. Nice. So you can do some road riding with like studs or decent yeah. whatever, and then get off and do some skiing and snowshoeing and all that fun stuff. 
Yeah, yeah, it's a pretty uh, it's a pretty cool environment that way. Mm, nice. Where can people find out more about you and follow your adventures? Uh, I'm on Instagram at uh, Megan Hackenen, and um, that's M E A G H A N. Megan with all the letters. Hackenen, H A C K I N E N. <laughs> and I also have a website that I uh, I'm trying to be better about putting ride reports up on, um, and that's MeganHackenen.com. Cool. I will link everything to it. Awesome. Is there anything I missed? Things you want to talk about that I I didn't touch on? Mm, no, I think that's been pretty thorough. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think if there's anything else, but I, I think you covered like. All right. Well, it was so fun, and I'm so glad that you uh, you you messaged me and that we could actually make this happen. Um, yeah. Well, um, I definitely support what you do here, and it's it's just great to hear conversations with people about you know cycling and bike packing and and all the different ways to get around by bike. Especially over the past two years, I've, I've really turned to mm-hmm. podcasts to kind of. Um, you know, maintain that connection that I feel like I've lost in other ways. And, and podcasts to me are, you know, they're, they're a big part of my life. And it's great to be able to kind of, you know, live vicariously through other people's adventures exactly. from, from my living room or my commute or, you know, wherever I am. It's, it's a really cool way to, to, you know, connect and inspire and engage and, and get more people out on bikes. Right. Especially through Canadian winters. <laughs> Right. Yeah. <laughs> you get a long winter. Yeah, especially in Ontario. It's like, pff, doesn't end. All right. Well, thank you for your time. You don't have to hang up, but I will end the show now. So we will talk soon and uh, keep on pedaling. Awesome. Thank you. Bye. I just want to thank Megan for spending the last couple hours chatting with me. It was really nice to get to hear her story and to kind of learn more about her. I keep seeing her um, pop up on different races and different accomplishments and it's really great to know the person that's actually doing it so thank you so much megan if you guys do have questions or things you'd like to hear reach out anytime i'm pretty quick with replying i do my best lots of people have reached out asking for advice on various things and uh, i'm just glad i can do my part so yeah that's awesome and uh if as well if you guys have recommendations on uh podcast guests do reach out i've had a few people reach out and suggest people And I'm in the works of getting some of those people on the show. So thank you so much, everybody, for listening and keep on peddling. Bye bye.